The goal of our Fiber of the Home project is to serve our rural membership and uh, for the ones that, that have the desire. Now, you know, obviously if we have some rural members way out in the middle of nowhere that, that aren't interested, we're not going to build that out there. But if the desire is there, we're going to serve 100% of our membership. This is episode 344 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. Jack Davis's grandfather also worked for the Pemiscot Dunklin Electric Cooperative. While his grandpa worked to bring electricity to people in Missouri's Boot Heel region, Jack is working on a project that will connect residents and businesses to high-quality internet access. The Electric Cooperative is deploying a fiber-to-the-home network, and people who have had poor connectivity for decades are signing up. In this interview, Jack and Christopher discuss the decision to invest in fiber versus other technologies. They also talk about the storm 10 years ago that influenced that decision, how the project is going, and how it's being received by rural residents. Now here's Christopher and Jack Davis talking about the Rural Fiber to the Home project from the Pemiscot Dunklin Electric Cooperative in southeast Missouri. Welcome to another edition of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance up in Minneapolis. Today I'm speaking with Jack Davis, the Vice President and CTO of Pemiscot Dunklin Electric Cooperative. Welcome to the show, Jack. Thanks, Chris. Great to be here. So the the first thing I want I should ask you is where you're located, uh, because I understand you're you're a bit sensitive if people accidentally type the Boot Hill of Missouri. <laughs> <laughs> That's a common mistake with people that aren't from here. But uh, we're in the little the appendage at the southeast corner of Missouri that looks like it should be part of Arkansas, pretty much. Um, and it's called the Boot Hill just because it looks like the heel of a boot. That's uh, where the name comes from. Um, a lot of times people think boot heel like uh, H-I-L-L, but it's actually a boot heel like H-E-E-L. Right. And you're one of the early electric cooperatives, one of the first ones formed after REA, it looks like. We were formed in 1937 is uh, when the co-op got its start. It's been a big part of the community here for years and years. Uh, my grandfather was a service foreman here. He worked here for 42 years and retired. Uh, I've been with a cooperative now for about five. All right, and and one of the things that you just mentioned to me is that if we look back in history, it's uh, ten years since a major ice storm. And so, before we get into the the broadband discussion, I'm I'm curious if you want to tell us a little bit about uh, about that and maybe how it changed the direction of the cooperative's thinking. Yeah, we had a we had a major ice storm in 2009, um, and this is right at the ten year anniversary of that. There's a lot of information, pictures, and things like that out there on the internet about it, but having lived through it, we were predicted to get a major ice storm. They were calling for it for days ahead of time, um, and I remember going to bed that night thinking, boy, you know, we're we're in for it, um, which was, this was before I was with the, the cooperative, but I was still a member, mm-hmm. and uh, the next morning we woke up and we still had power, and I thought, boy, we made it, you know, and about... Nine or ten o'clock that morning, the power went out, and I thought, "Boy, here we are." And and you walk outside, and it was just creepy because there was about an inch and a half to two inch uh, ice load on everything. Trees, you could hear branches just crashing and falling everywhere, and it was kind of creepy because there was no none of the ordinary sound that you hear. Right, it just sucks it all up. Yeah, and then night fell, and it was just this whole area was just black. 
anyway, that lasted for about three weeks um, where I live anyway. We had people out from anywhere from, uh, I think we got the first ones back on in about two weeks. And a lot of people didn't have power for three to four weeks. Um, it took out about 80% of our system um, at the time. And our GNT was working hard to get the substations going again. So we were prioritizing on that. What they got going, we were able to go in and get customers back online. So it was a major ordeal. We had thousands of linemen here from other cooperatives helping. And like I said, it took out about 80% of our entire system. Yeah, that much ice that you sort of <laughs> – I was just thinking that um, maybe if you had everyone running all, as many appliances as they could all night long, you you might have gotten enough heat to prevent it from forming. It seems like um, yeah, it would have been an exam, a potential experiment. <laughs> yeah, it was a – it was definitely an ordeal, hopefully a once-in-a-lifetime ordeal. But since then, we've uh, replaced most of the damage in our system. Uh, we work you know, every year to, to shore that up and make improvements to uh, hopefully avoid this in the future. Well, let's, so let's talk about the, the way that you're getting into fiber. You're doing fiber to the home. What's the goal of the, the fiber to the home? Is it to serve everyone then? The goal of our fiber to the home project is to serve our rural membership. And uh, for the ones that, that have the desire. Now, you know, obviously, if we have some real members way out in the middle of nowhere that, that aren't interested, we're not going to build that out there. But if the desire is there, we're going to serve 100% of our membership. And what's the name of it? It's Pemiscott Dunklin Fiber. We, we looked at some different names, and we were trying catchy names and things like that when we started. And in the end, we wanted people to realize that this was tied to the co-op because we're proud of our co-op and... And uh, the majority of our membership are as well. And we wanted those two things closely associated. So we just went with Pim Scott Dunklin Fiber. When I was uh, typing up some notes, I uh, I had a um, a little mistyping error. And I was thinking you could call it Dunklink if you wanted to. Just put a K on the end. <laughs> we, we went through a lot of... Uh, a lot of iterations uh, in the planning stages, and in the end, we settled on Tim Scott Dunklin Fiber, and for short, a lot of times, we'll just call it PD Fiber. Mm -hmm. And so, when you decided to do this, was there a demand from membership? Were they coming to meetings? Or were they contacting the GM and the board? How did you, or was this something that you decided to do, uh, you know, as the uh, management team? We had a lot of membership contact, and, and some of this was before my time talking to our manager, to our, C our CEO, to our board members, um, seeing what we could do as a cooperative to bring broadband to the rural membership. But about the only other option here besides satellite is fixed wireless at the moment. And, you know, you're, you're seeing speeds on that system of, you know, two to three meg. And mm -hmm. people were just starving for broadband. And um, one of the first things uh, after the CEO hired me, we were walking down the hall the next day, and he said, "Okay, you're you're here now. What can we do about internet service?" <laughs> and at the at the time, I really didn't think fiber was an option. I just felt like it was probably too costly. Which I come from a dial-up ISP background back in the in the 90s. So we started checking into it, and we thought, well, a wireless system is probably going to be the way to go. Uh, so we kind of started moving in that direction. I was re I was. Not looking forward to it because I've operated wireless in the past, and I know the issues associated with that. Our CEO wanted to, you know, continue checking on the the fiber route, so we uh, we worked with Connexon, uh, which I think you've had Jonathan Chambers on before. Yes, on many show. times. Yep. 
Yeah, he's a he's a great guy. Connexon is a wonderful partner in this. They're our consultants. So they did a study for us to determine if it was feasible or not, a feasibility study. And the results of that study just blew me away. They showed that not only would it work, but it you know it should work well. And um, so we deliberated for several months there and went. We had a presentation with the board. There was a lot of questions and answers um, provided there. And in the end, we decided that if we're going to move forward, that fiber to the home is the way to go. Well, let's talk a little bit about how you're doing it, because not only are you doing it, but common wisdom is that it's easier for uh, rural electric cooperatives such as yourself to do it in um, extremely rural areas because you have access to the poles. But from what I know, and as we talked about with the ice storm, you're not even using that advantage. <laughs> that's correct. That, that's generally one of the reasons co-ops get into it is because they can leverage existing infrastructure to uh, to build their network out. In our case, with that ice storm that we referred to, uh, our engineering firm calculates an inch and a half ice load on everything we do pretty much. Uh, they have to account for that. And... Just by adding a, a another fiber on our pole spans, we were going to have to go through and do so much make ready uh, that it was just going to be enormously, it was going to be very costly. So we started checking into the option of going underground. Uh, luckily, we have a local company that has done a lot of fiber work for uh, various companies. I won't mention any names, but they're very experienced in the underground boring and plowing. And so we went to them, and, and they were really honestly interested in being home for a while. Uh, they've been on the road for so many years that, uh, <laughs> right. that that they cut us kind of a sweetheart deal, you know, for the project, because that way they could be home. So uh, in the end, we decided that instead of going um, aerial, that we were going to go underground. It added a little bit of cost to the to the overall cost of the project, but... If you figured in, factored in the make ready we would have had to do on our poles, um, it's going to wind up uh, saving us some money. Plus, it's going to be a more robust system. And with that being said, we're using public right of way as well. So now we're not limited on where we go. So we no longer have to have pole attachment agreements with other utilities if we want to go into an area we don't serve. We use public right of way and go underground. So. And one of the things that we're hearing from some of the rural electrics is a challenge with easements. Is that a concern in Missouri? Is that something you had to work through? There's been just a handful of times that we've had to uh, had to get an easement signed from a landowner or something like that. Um, in general, we stick to public right away, so we're, we've met with counties. Uh, they've been very helpful, and uh, they want us in there, so they've been uh, been very good to work with the state has been excellent to work with Missouri uh, DOT on uh, giving us the permits that we need. Uh, it really hasn't been an issue. Well, I'm glad to hear that because too often we hear the opposite. So right. um, I'm glad that the system's working for you. Um, what kind of services are you making available? Uh, so we're, we're offering triple play services. Uh, we have um, broadband internet, uh, phone, and TV as well. And one of the decisions that we made in the beginning is that we didn't want to uh, – invest a lot of money in a head in for a video. So we partnered with uh, Como Connect, which is another cooperative here in Missouri. Uh, they're one of the first ones to get in the broadband game here in Missouri. And they've already got an established head in and they're already partnering with other cooperatives to provide TV service. 
so we utilize them for our TV service, and then we use another company for phone, and so we're providing all three to our membership. And do you overlap with any telephone cooperatives? Uh, we do not. Um, okay. There's there are no cooperatives here. Um, we've got just a standard. Uh, I believe AT and T is the only company that's had landline service here. Mm-hmm. We do overlap with a, a cable company in a few of the smaller communities that we serve, but but that's really about it. Okay. Um, what kind of internet speeds are you offering? Are you um, what do your tiers look like? We only have two tiers. Uh, we're offering a hundred meg for fifty dollars a month and one gig for eighty. And have you started turning people on yet? We have. We've got about. Uh, we're right at six hundred active subscribers right now. We began uh, turning people on about July of last year. And what's the mix in terms of uh, what people are subscribing to? Uh, we're about probably eighty twenty uh, hundred meg versus uh, gig. Uh, we do have several gig customers and that, that's probably about the ratio as far as the speeds go as far as tv goes it's uh probably a 60 40 mix of internet only versus internet and tv customers and then phone we're probably having around 15 to 20 percent of our customers take landline phone Mm-hmm. So I'm really curious, coming from um, the Midwest as well, um, you know, sometimes people talk about Tornado Alley or, um, you know, where the most tornadoes are. It switches almost every year, but you're right there in the path, obviously. Um, and so is, is, is the fiber that you're building going to help the electric system and its resilience? Uh, we believe it will. We haven't started yet, but we're going to utilize that network for SCADA and things like that on our electric side. Um, outage management. Currently, we use a power line carrier uh, system to read our meters, but uh, but we are going to connect our electric controls um, and so forth to our network so that we'll have that real-time data that, that, quite honestly, we just haven't had in the past. One of the other things I was curious about um, regarding the ice storm is, I, I presume you had to replace a bunch of poles then. Um, was it the case then that you still had a lot of original poles? Um, I'm, I'm just trying to get a, a sense of what the pole mix is like for a, an REC like you in the Midwest, um, because we hear concerns from a lot of folks um, about poles and putting, um, you know, putting the, the fiber up to load them up even further. I'm so in the dark about the kind of policies you have in terms of pole replacement. I mean, is the is the problem typically that the poles are old, or is it just that uh, the size of them? I mean, what 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 determines whether or not they are going to be reliable in the event of an ice storm? Well, it's a combination of factors. Pole age is definitely one of the factors. Um, class of the pole, which is the uh, the sturdiness of it, how well it's built, the structure of the pole is another one of the factors. But when you've got an ice storm the way we had in 2009, there's almost, I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's an act of God. There's almost nothing. Right, that's game over at that point <laughs> for that, that scale of storm. <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, about the only thing you could do is go with higher class poles and shorten your span length way down. You know, when you start getting an inch and a half to two inch ice load on your, your power lines at some point, you know, the more it builds up, the and plus the wind is a, is a factor as well, um, which you can do things like put uh, devices on your lines to prevent the galloping that you get with wind. But at some point, you know, when that catastrophic ice storm we had, 
I think we were right in the bullseye of the the worst area hit here. And mm-hmm. you know, at, at at some point, there's not a lot you can do except sit back and and try to rebuild when it's over. What kind of a mix of of plowing are you looking at? Because you know, you mentioned the the boring, and I I haven't looked at the map. I'm I'm okay at geography. <laughs> I'm not great. I'm not sure how much mountainous area you're in there with the um, with the Ozarks. We're several hours away from that. Uh, we're actually in a very flat, uh, non-rocky soil here. So that's another reason that we were able to get a great rate as far as our underground insulation. Um, this used, this whole area used to be a kind of a swampy area back in the 1800s. Uh, the Corps of Engineers has done a lot of work putting in flood control here. It's a huge agriculture area now. Mm-hmm. And it's very flat. Uh, the soil is, like I said, it's non-rocky. There's only place you're going to find rocks are on county roads, you know. So uh, it's very easy to plow and very easy to bore. Right. Okay. Because that's where up here in in uh, Minnesota and some of our farm country as well, we have that same the same benefit. But if you had received um, a sense of from the feasibility study that it would have been prohibitive to go underground if the costs were so great um would that have pushed you back toward wireless or would you have been trying to figure out how to get some of the fiber on the poles i believe we would have done more work towards uh shoring up our poles and shortening spans um it would have cost quite a bit you know more money but um i think in the end we were pretty much set on going with the fiber as long as uh long as we could make it work right the last question I wanted to ask you is the reaction. Um, and, and first, I think the reaction from some of your members that have had it, um, but also I'm curious about the uh, neighboring RECs, if, if um, you know, your building it has made them more likely to consider something like that. Uh, we've only got one neighbor electric cooperative that's doing a fiber-to-the-home system at the moment, and that is SEMO Cooperative. Um, Go SEMO, they're just north of us. And we've actually partnered with them we're under the same GNT uh, generation and transmission cooperative that provides us our power, mm-hmm. um, and so we had we're actually connected via fiber network already, and we partnered with them on some transportation issues that we had uh, transportation routes. Uh, so basically, we we purchased a route and they purchased a route, and then we bonded our networks together and provided paths for each other in and out, and provided some redundancy for both of our networks. It's worked out really well. And how have your own members reacted? Our own members are are elated. We've got one, uh, and keep in mind these are these are members that in the past have only had you know two or three made connections. Uh, but we've got one pretty well known photographer in the area that does a lot of photography work. He got his his uh, fiber connected, and he bought the gig package. And after they installed it, they said, "Well, you know, try it out." So he he sat down and he had a portfolio that he normally uploads, and that morning he called me and he was he was laughing so much that he couldn't hardly talk. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but he, he said that normally when he uploads a portfolio package, which is you know I don't know how many raw pictures he uploads or whatever to a processor, uh, he said normally he he starts it, he types out his description and. And information and then he just lets it run and it usually takes six to eight hours to complete and he said it was literally done uploading before he got the description typed out <laughs> and so he was just beyond ecstatic he was so happy that he almost couldn't uh couldn't talk 
but that's just one example. We, you know, it, it's almost like thirsty people getting water around here. There's just a lot of a lot of excitement. A lot of people wondering, you know, when they're going to get it because this is a four-year project that we're working on. Uh, we're just in the beginning of the second year right now. Uh, a lot of the members are seeing these the excitement of of our other members that have just received service and they're wondering when they're going to get it, you know, and and we've tried to temper the the expectation down. You know, we want people to realize that this is a long-term project and that we're going to get to them just as soon as we can, but it's just going to take time. Right. And have you seen any population change in terms of um, areas that, um, you know, might be adjacent to your electric territory um, where they're probably served by, you know, maybe AT&T or, or not at all and they're they're moving over to your area? I think we're so early in the game right now that uh, I think it would be, I think it's a little premature to mm-hmm. judge anything like that. I, I haven't noticed anything in particular. I do know that we're getting a lot of inquiries from from areas just around our territory, wondering if we, you know, if we'll build service out, as well as a lot of the communities here that we don't serve electrically, they're wondering if we'll we'll come into town and, and serve them, and that's something we're going to take a look at uh, if they're within our electric footprint, but we we don't serve that little community or whatever. So that's definitely something that we're going to take a look at. All right. How are you financing all this? Is this something that you're able to um, do with loans or have you needed to find some subsidies? How does all that work? Um, Everything that we've done so far, we're 100% self-financed. We were not able to get any of the CAF um, auction money. The FCC wound up taking off just about every census block in our area before the auction due to an incumbent wireless provider that's here. So we were not able to participate in the CAF auction and get any, take advantage of that. Um, so at this point, we are 100% uh, self-financed through loans. We did receive one $750,000 grant from the Delta Regional Authority, uh, which is a local organization here to us. We received 750000 and SEMO received 250000 But beyond that, we're 100% self-financed with loans. Well, and you mentioned that the wireless um, providers that, that most people are using in that area um, are not delivering um, anything even close to broadband. Um, and so can, can I assume that you were pretty frustrated at, at, at some of the claims that might have been made? Or if, in fact, it was just a, the anomaly that, that a WISP could provide service to a few households and then therefore entire census blocks were removed? We were extremely frustrated. We worked with Jonathan and talked to the FCC a lot. In the end, there just wasn't anything we could do. Um, mm-hmm. They A lot of it had to do with the way the 477 data is reported. Um, this particular carrier also operates a, a copper network in a couple of towns here where they provide phone service as well as like DSL. And it just it wound up taking the whole the whole area off the block. Uh, which mm-hmm. was pretty pretty disheartening, but uh, we we decided, hey, we started this without it, and we're going to finish it without it if we have to. So, well, and what would the difference have been? I mean, obviously, it would have been easier on your finances, but is this something that you could have done more rapidly if you had the support of the Connect America Fund? That was the idea. You know, we're very interested in, in building our entire area, not just our electric footprint. You know, everything that that lies within our electric footprint, even if we serve it electrically or not, and this would have allowed us to go into some of those areas more quickly than we would be able to otherwise. Mm-hmm. And just to clear up for people then, I'm, I'm assuming that you have an electric footprint and then there's holes within it, basically. That's correct, yeah. There, there's some uh, 
larger towns that a uh, private utility has electric service in that we do not cover. We just cover pretty much the rural areas with the exception of a few small communities. Sure. Thank you, Jack, for coming on. Um, I appreciate it. And, and it's just so great to hear more stories of um, how, you know, frankly, in, in four years, you know, everyone that you serve is going to have better access than I'll bet I can get in uh, the major urban areas of Minnesota. So um, I, it's a great investment you're making. Thanks for telling us about it. Yes, sir. Thank you. That was Christopher and Jack Davis from the Pemiscot Dunklin Electric Cooperative in Southeast Missouri. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this podcast and the other podcasts from ILSR, Building Local Power, and the Local Energy Rules podcast. You can access them wherever you get your podcasts. Don't miss out on our important research from all of our initiatives. Subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org, and while you're there, please take a moment to donate. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed through Creative Commons, and thank you for listening to episode 344 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Music